For our scripture reading, we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 33. chapter speaks about the, the death of Moses and this chapter speaks of how speaks of Moses blessing the people uh, before his death begin at verse 1 and this is the blessing wherewith Moses the man of God blessed the children of Israel before his death and he said the Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yea, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand, and they sat down at thy feet. Every one shall receive of thy words. Moses commanded us a law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun. When the heads of the people and the tribes of Israel were gathered together, let Reuben live and not die, and let not his men be few. And this is the blessing of Judah. And he said, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him unto his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and be thou an help to him from his enemies. And of Levi he said, Let thy Thummim and thy Urim be with thy Holy One, whom thou didst prove at Massa and with whom thou didst strive at the waters of Meribah, who said unto his father and to his mother, I have not seen him, neither did he acknowledge his brethren, nor knew his own children. For they have observed thy word and kept thy covenant. They shall teach Jacob thy judgments and Israel thy law, they shall put incense before thee, and whole burnt sacrifice upon thine altar. Bless, Lord, his substance, and accept the work of his hands. Smite through the loins of them that rise against him, and of them that hate him, that they rise not again. And of Benjamin he said, The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, and the Lord shall cover him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. And of Joseph he said, Blessed of the Lord be his land for the precious things of heaven, for the dew and for the deep that coucheth beneath, and for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun, and for the precious things put forth by the moon, and for the chief things of the ancient mountains, and for the precious things of the lasting hills. 
and for the precious things of the earth and fullness thereof, and for the good will of him that dwelt in the bush. But the blessing come upon the head of Joseph and upon the top of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. His glory is like the firstling of his flock, of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. And they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. And of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in thy going out, and Issachar in thy tents. They shall call the people unto the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall suck of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures hid in the sand. And of Gad he said, Blessed be he that enlargeth Gad. He dwelleth as a lion and teareth the arm with the crown of the head. And he provided the first part for himself, because there in the portion of the lawgiver was he seated. And he came with the heads of the people. He executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full with the blessing of the Lord, possess thou the west and the south. And of Asher, he said, Let Asher, Asher be blessed with children. Let him be acceptable to his brethren. And let him dip his foot in oil. Thy shoes shall be iron and brass. And as thy, and as thy days, so shall thy strength be. There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help, and in his excellency on the sky. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone, the fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heaven shall drop down dew. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency? And thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee and thou shalt tread upon their high places. So far we read from the, from the Holy Scriptures this morning. And the passage that we just read and all the rest of Scripture are the basis for the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in, in Lord's Day 1. There we read, 
but as thy only comfort in life and death. That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou, enjoying this comfort, mayest live and die happily? Three, the first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered, delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. Dearly beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, shortly before his death, we read that Moses blessed the people. And we read in this chapter that statement at the end. Happy art thou, O Israel. Happy art thou. Who is like unto thee? O people saved by the Lord, who is like unto thee? Happy art thou, O Israel. That that was the word of God to them. That they were the truly happy people. That Egypt, where they had come to think of all the the pleasures that there were in Egypt with regard to food and drink, for example, whatever other comforts that they had while they were in Egypt, well, now they were out in the wilderness. And out there in the wilderness, they were told that you are the happy people. Who is like unto thee? You are the people that are saved by Jehovah. You are the people with whom Jehovah has made his covenant. You belong to him. You are not your own. You belong to him who has saved you. Happy art thou, O Israel. They were told that. And that word comes to us too. The word that came to them so many years ago when they were in the wilderness. That they were told they are happy. They are blessed. And those who are blessed of the Lord are happy. They have true, true happiness. They have true joy. 
Well, that word comes to us too. It has come to God's people from generation to generation. That God speaks to you and to me, members of the body of Christ, and tells us we are happy. Jehovah is our God. He's made his covenant with us. Our God is with us. Who has a God like your God? The living God. Who delivers you. Who preserves you. Who abides with you. Who else has a God like your God? What a comfort that is. And how good it is for us to be reminded of that. Well, we can tend to get down. We can tend to get discouraged. There are things in our life that we wish were different. And our minds can often be on those things. We can often get down. We can feel sorry for ourselves. And then we hear God say to us, You are happy. Happy art thou. And indeed, we confess it is true. And as we go through the Heidelberg, we are going through it from the viewpoint that we confess that this is true. We do have comfort. We have comfort in death. We have comfort in life. And we're not our own in whatever we go through, in times when we have pain, in times when we have sorrow. We confess that we do have comfort. We belong to Christ. We are members of his body. He dwells in us by his spirit. And as we go through each day, that applies also to what we do. We remember also, we're not our own. What should I do today? I'm not my own. I belong to my Savior. And indeed, the Spirit works in us. The Spirit who assures us that we have life everlasting. That spirit works in us and makes us sincerely willing and ready to live unto our Lord. That that's what we want to do. We want to express our gratitude. And we go through the catechism with our mind on the comfort that we have in Christ, the happiness, the joy that we have in our Lord. We consider this Lord's Day an introductory Lord's Day under the theme, the truly happy people. We consider, first of all, confessing our faith. When we begin the Heidelberg, we have a few comments about the whole subject of writing down what we believe. 
and that this has been passed down to us and the importance of our, of our confessions and how thankful we are for them. Secondly, we look at it from the viewpoint of enjoying this comfort and we take note of these last verses of chapter 33 of Deuteronomy. That we enjoy this comfort, that we really do have this comfort. And we take note of some of the specific statements that are made in this section about the comfort that we have in Christ Jesus. And then thirdly, we look at it from the viewpoint of our daily life. That those who have this comfort, who know they're not their own, who confess that this is their comfort in our daily life, we delight to live unto our Lord to whom we belong. The truly happy people, confessing our faith, enjoying this comfort, and living unto Christ. First and fundamental question that comes up with regard to our confessions is why do we even have them? And you wonder, why do you, why do you have confessions? Isn't the scriptures enough? You mean, you're not going to improve on the scriptures, right? And so isn't it, isn't it sufficient for us to say that we hold to the scriptures? If we have the scriptures, then, then why, would we, why would we write confessions? Well, we may be asked that question, and perhaps some here have been asked that question before. Why do you speak so much about your confessions? Well, one point that we bring out is how confessions came about in the providence of God. They were often written in connection with some controversy, which serves to bring up that although, yes, it's true, we have the scriptures, there are those that teach wrongly about what the scriptures say. And so although we have the scriptures, there are times when there are those that are teaching things and saying this is what scripture teaches and it really is not what scripture says. And that's the way it has been and that's the way it is today. All sorts of teachings are taught and people claim that they're from the Bible when they are not. And so for to just say, well, you know, isn't it enough that we have the scriptures? Well, we have people saying all different things about the scriptures. And some would even say, we can't even know what the truth is. I mean, look, at there, there's all these different views. How could there be all these different views of what the scriptures say? It must be that the scriptures aren't sufficiently clear. We can't really know for sure what it says. And we say, that's not the problem. The problem isn't the scriptures. They are clear. The fundamental teachings of the scriptures are clear. But man by nature is a, is a sinner and he doesn't, he doesn't like what God says. And he quickly goes about to, to change things because he doesn't like what the scriptures say. That's the way it has been. That's the way it is today. 
And added to that can be the fact that there can be those that are trying to understand something and that they have a wrong idea and they need to be corrected. And there have been times where there have been disagreements. Disagreements, say, on the Trinity. Disagreements on the person and natures of Christ. And the church has seen the need to gather together and to write out a summary of what what we believe on these doctrines. So the first creeds were shorter and especially emphasized the doctrine of the Trinity and the person and natures of, of Jesus Christ. We refer to them as the ecumenical creeds. The church continues to grow in her understanding. And as we grow in our understanding, we, there have been more controversy, in more controversies, God has, who sovereignly directs all things. When there's more difficulties and more disagreements about various doctrines, God has guided the church, like at the time of the Reformation, to write some much more detailed creeds about what we believe and distinguishing us from the Roman Catholics distinguishing us also from the Lutherans at different places. For among the Protestant churches, there were the Reformed, there were also the Lutherans, and the Lutherans and the Reformed had differences in various areas. And so there was a desire to set forth what we maintain over against the Lutherans as well. <coughs> and then when there were those that were taught what we often refer to as Arminianism, after a man named Arminius, which is a, a term that's used in general to refer to the idea that God desires to save all human beings and that Jesus died for all human beings, common teaching. Well, over against that, the canons of Dort set forth the truth concerning salvation by grace alone, particular grace, unconditional election the truth that Christ died only for his covenant people. In different times of controversy, God's people have written out the confessions in more detailed form. A creed, the word creed, comes from a word that means to believe. And it sets forth what a church or a group of churches officially believes. And that brings out, too, that for it to be a church's creed, that means the church has adopted it. Someone could write down on their own a summary of what we as churches believe, but it would not be a creed itself. And the a creed, something for something to be an official creed, that means that it's not only a summary of what we maintain, but it's a summary that we as churches have officially adopted and that we as churches have said this is the creed or these are the creeds to which we hold these accurately summarize scripture. We don't exalt the creeds above scripture as some might say, well you guys exalted the creeds above the scriptures. That's not true. We say the scriptures are the only infallible authority. We say that 
with regard to the creeds, if someone can show, if someone shows an error in them, we will make changes to them. We say they accurately summarize what the scriptures teach and that we maintain that they are accurate. But if somebody can show from scripture an error in them, then we will make a change in that area. The scriptures are the infallibly inspired word of God. And we see in our confessions that there is a constant going to the scriptures. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism itself, we see repeatedly how the Heidelberg Catechism goes to scripture and proves what we maintain from scripture. It's good that we have the creeds that we do. There are those that either reject creeds or they desire just kind of a general, non-distinctive kind of a creed. Something that people could say and would agree to even with a wide variety of different beliefs. Well, the fact that we have creeds as detailed as we do, especially for if you think of how detailed the canons are, where they say what we believe and what we don't believe. The fact that we have creeds as detailed as we do shows that our Reformed fathers saw the importance of being distinctive, distinguishing what we hold to from what others teach that is not correct. To distinguish them. That's what we mean when we talk about being distinctive. To say the truth in such a way that we distinguish what we maintain from other things that are taught that are not accurate. That do not act, are not actually what the scriptures state. A couple of other points with regard to confessions of faith. And that is, confessions of faith serve as a means of instruction to pass down from one generation to the next what Scripture teaches. And that has been, that was the use of the Heidelberg Catechism. It was to be used in the, in the churches and in the schools so that instruction an accurate summary of what scripture teaches could be passed down from one generation to the next. Concerning the doctrines we hold to, concerning the Christian life, going through the commandments, concerning prayer and what we're to pray for and what those petitions mean, concerning our doctrine, concerning our life, that that instruction is passed down from one generation to the next. And when we baptize our children, we say that we will instruct them in the, in the word of God to the utmost of our power. Well, the, our confessions give us an accurate summary of what the scriptures say. So a good way to do that is by teaching them what our confessions teach, which we do going through the Heidelberg Catechism, which we do not only going through the catechism from the pulpit, but we also do that in the catechism room. And we also go through other confessions too, like in catechism. And we make references at various times to our other confessions so that people are aware and learn from them. Where there's many that 
they have confessions, but they hardly know what they say. There's many that really don't know. Like the canons of Dort, many hardly know about what the canons of Dort is. You know, how was the canons of Dort arranged? There would be those that say they really don't know. Like the first head, you know, what's the first head about? They really don't know. You say, well, can you think of anything that's said in the canons? Anything. There are those that would be hard-pressed to be able to say anything that they can remember that's there. And then if you were to ask them, do you hold everything that's taught in the canons? They may say, oh, yeah. Well, how, you know, do you say that with understanding? I mean, you're familiar with, with what it said. It's important that we do. You know, when we sign the formula, of, if those that sign the formula of subscription speak about the fact that they maintain what's taught in our confessions, it makes reference to the canons of Dort, for example, it serves to bring out how important it is that we do understand and how useful they are in that passing down of instruction from one generation to the next. Also from the viewpoint of building, of growing in our understanding, <coughs> that there are those that would say, you know, this is a new generation. You know, we live in a new generation. We need fresh confessions. Those are old. Let's have something fresh. Why would you be talking about something that was written and approved like 1563? Really? Something so old? Why not something fresh? Well, we bring out that you don't discard what was taught in the past. You don't... When God guided the church to write what they have written and given the accurate summary that we have, we're thankful to God for what he has given us. And as far as each generation is to build upon what they've learned from the past, what the church in the past has learned, not to reject what the church in the past has learned and, and confessed and start over, but to build. Which involves being thoroughly acquainted with what our creeds teach and also in regard to issues that we face in our own day. Difficulties, controversies we have in our own day. That we start by, we, we learn what was confessed in the past, that we confess that same truth today, and we also seem desire to grow searching the scriptures together, looking to God to guide us in our confession of, of the truth. This confession is a personal confession. We don't just say it in an act of, you know, like an intellectual, kind of a cold intellectual kind of a way, but that we confess this in a, in a personal way, we say that this is our comfort. We don't just, we also speak in the first person. 
We don't simply say this is the comfort of God's people. We could say that. But we also say this is our comfort. And we teach our children to say that too. The question is not to the children, do you have comfort? But the question that's brought to them is, what is it? You do have comfort. We, the people of God, we address the children as members of the body of Christ. And we, the children of God, do have comfort. We really do. What is that comfort? What is our only comfort in life and in death? And we confess that our comfort is that we're not our own. And that's the theme that runs through the catechism, that we talk about the doctrines from the viewpoint of our comfort, so that although we do refute error, we bring up various teachings and we refute them, we go through the whole confession from the viewpoint of the comfort that we have. Even when we're talking about our sin and misery. We, we say that's one of the things that we need to know. What are necessary for thee to know that enjoying this comfort may us live and die happily? Well, that's one of the things we need to know. How great our sins and miseries are. We need to know that. And how we're delivered from our sins and miseries and how we express our gratitude to God. We need to know these things. We do have comfort. Those outside, those outside the body of Christ don't really have comfort. When God says to his people, Happy art thou, O Israel. Brings out that it really is the case that outside of Israel, outside of God's people, put it that way, outside of the elect people of God, there really is no comfort. There really is no happiness. And we do know that. You know, the people of the world will try to comfort one another. They may say to one another, oh, don't let that bother you. Or they may say, oh, don't worry about these things. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. Or maybe they'll point out how others have it worse. They'll see somebody that's going through a difficulty and they'll say, well, you know, it could be worse. Sometimes they'll say that about themselves. Well, it could be worse. And of course, there's sometimes we say that too, that we're going through a difficulty and we're thankful that it's not worse than it is. But as far as those of the world, they can say things like that, but what do they really have that's really comforting? How can you be happy without God? How can anybody be happy without God? How can somebody be happy when they know that God's wrath is upon them? How can somebody be happy when they know they have no, they really have no hope? Those of the world don't have comfort, and neither would we. If God had not redeemed us, 
like Israel being brought out of Egypt. We've been called out. We've been separated from this world. God makes his covenant with us. And that we're not our own. You see the connection between that and the covenant? What is the covenant? It's a bond of friendship. God is our God. We are his people. Well, that's the idea of the only comfort right there. Not our own. The idea of the comfort is that we belong to Christ. And when we refer to it from the viewpoint of Christ, belonging to Christ, he's our husband. We belong to him. We belong to our husband. Well, that marriage, that's a covenant relationship. We belong to our Lord. He's made his covenant with us. And we say the covenant is friendship. God makes his covenant with us means he dwells with us. And he dwelt with his people. He was with them. It wasn't simply that he brought them out of Egypt into a separate place, but that he himself was not with them. He was with them. He dwelt with his people. He spoke to them. He spoke to them, and Moses brought to them the word of God. He spoke to the people. God speaks to us. He speaks to us about his will. He tells us what his will is concerning us. He expresses to us his love for us. He tells us his secret counsel and will concerning our salvation. He assures us that we will always be with him, that no one can separate us from him. He talks to us about the future. Back then when he talked to them about the promised land. And so we think of what the promised land pointed to, too. And we think of how, what God has promised us. So right now we look around us and we see difficulties. Well, like they were in the wilderness. Dealt with the difficulties that they had in the wilderness. And each day they'd have those difficulties. And of course there were many that died. You think of all the people that died while they were in the wilderness. So the people that hear this had seen a lot of people they knew die. And God tells them they're happy. They have Jehovah with them. His people are sinners, and God chastens them in love. But he maintains his covenant. He has established a covenant with us, an everlasting covenant. He preserves his covenant people. The covenant promise does not depend upon his people for its realization. God has made a promise. He has told us what he will do, and he will do that. 
He brought us in to the body of Christ without us doing anything. We were dead. He engrafted us into Christ. We received the blessings that are found in, that are in Christ Jesus. And we who are in Christ, we could never be separated from him. It's entirely of God. Now, knowing that, we have comfort. If, if, if we thought we could lose it, if we thought that we who are in Christ today could lose it, lose that relationship, what comfort would we have then? And yet we know that's not the case. It's not the case that we can lose our salvation. God has made an everlasting covenant with us. We belong to him. And as far as the trials that we go through, well, he tells us all things are subservient to our salvation. So it's not simply that there are some difficulties we've got to go through, but there's also these blessings too. There's, as if well, you look at all the, the evils that we have to face, but then you look at what God has promised us, well, we say, actually, the evils that we go, that he sends, he turns to our, our advantage. He averts evil, or he turns it to our profit. All things work together for good. And we confess that's really true. All things are subservient to my salvation. Without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. What comfort we have in the trials we go through as we go through each day. In this section, God speaks to his people. And the words are, there's none like unto the God of Jeshurun. Now that's a name, Jeshurun is a name for a name for the people of God, and it means something, something like upright, upright one or righteous one. And that's the, they just simply wrote it down as the, as the word is. There's none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help and in his excellency on the sky. Who's like unto your God? Your God is over all. The section talks about the comfort that we have from the viewpoint of God being over us and also the idea that he is underneath. He's our dwelling place. And you think of a dwelling place and you think of where we dwell and you've got a roof and you've got a foundation. God is over us. He, he rides upon the heaven in our help. He helps us. And he's over all things. Over all things in heaven and earth. He created all things. He governs and directs everything. Your God does. And God is saying to Israel, now look at the other nations. 
Your God is over all things. What other nation has a God like yours? You have the true God as your God. The creator who governs and directs everything. Many don't confess the truth about creation and many don't confess the truth about God governing and directing everything. So that everything happens as God has determined, yet it's true. And the one who upholds and governs all things is our God. And he's the one who is over all. He's the one that rules in us, gives us grace. The grace that we need each day. And he's the one that upholds us. So we look at the God from the viewpoint of him, of him being over us and over all things. And we look at him from the viewpoint of upholding us. The eternal God is thy refuge and underneath, underneath are the everlasting arms. You think of how often this is quoted. How often we quote this verse and think on this verse when we're thinking about the comfort that we have. That underneath are arms. And those arms are everlasting. They're not arms that get exhausted holding us up. You think of like holding up a child and after a while you start to get tired holding them up. The almighty God is the one that's upholding us. His arms are everlasting. And as we go through whatever we're going through today, we are comforted knowing that underneath are the everlasting arms of our God who's with us. And that brings out the idea that he's with us. If somebody is, hold, is upholding you, well, the one upholding you is with you. With you, upholding you. And that's what we confess is, the, is reality. And the ones that have this God as their God, this God as their dwelling place, this God as their refuge, those people, those people are happy. And they dwell in safety, alone. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. You think of the other nations that make alliances. Always concerned about their safety. Still the case today. Nations on this earth make alliances with other nations. And they group themselves together. You know, for safety. And they say an attack upon one is an attack upon all of us. And we're going to work together. And then we're going to be safe if we all work together. And then when there's an opposing force that comes, we're going to stand as a united force and we're going to make alliances. And Israel stands in safety alone. And 
Not among the other nations. Not among the nations. It's different than the other nations. This is the holy nation. The one holy nation. It's different from the nations of the world. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's a people that dwell with their God. And it's made up of people from all these different nations. But although for a time, back in the old dispensation, especially among the nation of Israel, that God was, were, were God's people. Yet we know that also even in the old dispensation, there were those from other nations. And we know, especially now since Pentecost, God's gathering a people from the different nations of the world. And that all those who confess this same truth are one. And that's one of the purposes of the confessions, too. That we write a confessions, a confession, and then when we find others, we talk to them, now this is what we believe. Do you believe this? And when we find those that believe the same thing, we're united with them, wherever they are. And we have our jo Jehovah God is with us. He protects us. We don't need, we don't look elsewhere. Israel at times wrongly trusted in Assyria or they trusted in Egypt. And they were told, well, you just trust in your God. We look to our God. He's our sword. He's our shield. That's our sword and, sword and shield. It says so right in verse 29. Say by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency? He's the one that defends us. We have all we need in Christ. The people who confess that, we truly are happy. And then in our life, well, the same principle then applies in our life. We live unto our Lord, willing and ready to live unto him. We see in the answer to the catechism, how you can see a reference to God the Father, you see a reference to Christ, and you see a reference to the Spirit. With regard to God the Father, it speaks of how without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. It speaks of Christ to whom we belong and who with his precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me, etc. And then it mentions the Spirit, His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, that by His Holy Spirit, He assures me. The Spirit is the one that works in you and me faith. That's what the Spirit does. Knowledge and confidence. The Spirit works in us that faith. He assures us. 
that we will live forever. And thankful, we want to live unto him. He makes us sincerely willing and ready. He does that. That's the Spirit's work within us. And oh, sir, we, we fight against sin, and we talk about that repeatedly throughout the catechism, that it's a warfare. We just ended with Lord's Day 52 about the battle and that we can't stand a moment of ourselves, that we're so weak. And it is a struggle night and day as the enemies assault us. And we do come to God constantly calling out to him, asking for forgiveness. Looking to him for strength to keep fighting. Confessing how great our sins and miseries are. But also, believe, and also believing that we're, we are delivered. And we do confess that the Spirit is working in us, making us willing, sincerely willing. It isn't fake. That we're not just going through the motions outwardly and, and faking it. We don't just put on an outward show when people see us that isn't, that isn't a manifestation of what's really going on. We sincerely, we are sincerely willing and ready to live unto him. We're not our own. We belong to him. We want to show our thankfulness to him. You think about Israel had the law. You say about Israel, you know, they, God made his covenant with them and he gave them his law. They were the people that had the law of God. We are the people that have the law of God in our heart. Outside, they don't. The one people that has the law of God in their heart and having the law of God in our heart, we want to do what that law says. God said, this is the covenant. I will put my law in their heart. And when we sin, we grieve. Because we delight in the law of God. After the inward man, as Paul said, I see another law in my members. And there's this war, as Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. But he confesses, I do delight I really do. His law is in my heart. And we know that the one who has made his covenant with us, who has written his law in our heart, will forever be our God. And as we go through each day, we're to constantly remember, I'm not my own. What am I going to do today on the Lord's Day? I'm not my own. 
and to make good use of this day. I belong to my Savior. And the decisions that we make in life, whom we're going to date, whom we're going to marry, where we're a member, what we are busy doing in the home and outside the home and in our schools, we're not our own. We belong to our Savior. And we delight to walk with our God and to make known to others what we believe. And that's what our confession is, a way for us, we make a statement about this is what we believe. We not only have it written down, but it's good that when we make known that outwardly to others too, that we confessed before men that we do have comfort in whatever we're going through. Sometimes people may see that we're going through a difficult time. They may be aware of difficulties that we're facing. And it's good when we confess before men, too. We have comfort. And this is what our comfort is. Our only comfort in life and death. We're not our own. We truly are happy, blessed, and we delight to sing his praises. May we glorify him in our confession and in our walk. May we live to his honor. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, our God, thou who hast made thy covenant with us, Thou who hast made thy covenant with our children, we're so thankful that we and our children together confess that we're not our own, that we belong to our Savior. We're so thankful for that comfort that we have in Christ, working us by thy Spirit to glorify thee in the things that we do. May thy name be praised by us and by those who are thy people in all nations, may we together praise and exalt thy holy name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.